Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Caught in a quicksand, and I'm starting to sing. So tired of stopping that my mind can barely think. Children of the 80s are back with another one of our reviews of one of our childhood favorites. I'm Patrick. I'm Bobby. G'day, I'm Shane. And this week we're reviewing 1985's Into the Night with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer. But before we get into our wondrous little review, first a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Ambien. Are you struggling with restlessness? Do you have insomnia? When you count sheep at night, do they draw pistols and start yelling at you in Iranian? If so, we have the drug for you. Ambien is the best sleep aid this side of a gangster pistol whipping. Without those pesky welts and blood afterward. Take two small pills and in no time you will be dreaming about driving all over a deserted Los Angeles cityscape while picking up hot, dangerous women packing illegal contraband up their wazoo. Act now, and we'll throw in a red Ferrari for no good reason other than you're a really nice guy. Side effects may include your wife sleeping with your boss. And you may fantasize Elvis is alive and driving his white Cadillac convertible all about town. If you experience an erection lasting longer than four hours, first of all, congratulations are in order. Immediately seek medical assistance from a sex therapist, preferably one looking like Rosanna Arquette and not Roseanne Barr. Then after you see your therapist, Make sure you send me all of your remaining pills so I can experience that same side effect too. My wife thanks you profusely. Ambien, the medical profession's answer to reading the Twilight book series. So remember, if you find yourself sitting at a counter and a buck-naked Michelle Pfeiffer walks right in front of you, you're having a wet dream. You can thank us later. It well, may not be the funniest, I, I, but it's I'm, definitely I'm the speak, longest. I'm a bit speechless. <laughs> All right, the summary for Into the Night. Ed Oaken can't sleep. Every day, he has breakfast. Oh, that's Stan. Every day, he goes to work. Every day, he comes home. You're losing your mind, Ed. One day, he comes home early. That night, 
he takes a drive. And Diana falls into his life. I have something they want. It's worth a great deal of money. Let's not do anything rash, Ed. This is just too weird for me. I was his mistress. This is ridiculous. Jeff Goldblum. Why can't I sleep? Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm one of the bad guys. Into the Night. A dangerous romance. Into the Night. The new film from John Landis. Jeff Goldblum plays a depressed insomniac by the name of Ed Oaken, the 80s equivalent to Rami Malek, a kind of weird, socially awkward man with big eyes. Although the 80s version of Elliot Alderson also works with the computers, Ed was at least able to adapt well enough to get married. Ed's sleepless problems are compounded when he discovers that his wife is having an affair. But instead of confronting that cheating bitch about it, Ed jumps into the hatchback and heads off to the airport with visions of Sin City in his future. Once at the airport, Ed encounters the unusually beautiful Diana, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Diana and her would-be male suitor are attacked by four Iranian assassins in the airport parking garage. The assassins, who are crossed between the Three Stooges and Corporal Hudson from Aliens, are able to kill Diana's male companion, but Diana is able to escape. She runs into Ed in his car, who quickly gets the beautiful girl out of the garage and into his heart. But instead of going to the police, Diana leads Ed on a tour of Los Angeles, which appears to be filled with Hollywood directors. Eventually, Diana reveals to Ed the reason she can't go to the police. You see, Diana has smuggled priceless emeralds stolen from the treasury of the Shah of Iran into the United States by hiding them in nature's handbag, her vagina. It's not just used for sexual pleasure and presidential handshakes anymore. Diana and Ed are being chased all over Los Angeles by multiple assassins and thieves who are all trying to get the stolen jewels. And they are leaving a trail of bodies behind them as everyone who has the misfortune of encountering Ed and Diana soon comes into contact with the Iranian Stooges or a murderous Ziggy Stardust. Eventually, Ed and Diana turn to Diana's sugar daddy, Jack, for assistance. Diana lost contact with Jack when he turned ill and Diana was cock-blocked by Jack's psycho wife. Jack helps them out by giving them some information, some money, and a couple of cars. The information is that the big bad of the film is Shaheen Parvici, a wealthy Iranian wo woman who is desperately trying to put together the funds for a real estate deal. Shaheen needs the jewels to raise the capital for the deal. Jack convinces Ed and Diana that they need to make a deal with Shaheen if they want to stay alive. Ed volunteers to go and set up the deal with Shaheen while Diana runs and hides the jewels. After Shaheen pays Ed the money for the jewels, he's released and heads to the airport to meet Diana. Diana calls Shaheen and tells her where the jewels are hidden. When Shaheen arrives to pick up the jewels, she's arrested by the police and the feds. Ed and Diana attempt to fly to Mexico, but before they can make their southern getaway, Diana is taken hostage by one of the Iranians in the airport. Suddenly, police, federal agents, and TSA agents, all armed with guns, jump out of every corner and point their weapons at the Iranian assassin and Diana. Ed tries to talk the Iranian down by talking about his own life. But this has the same effect as anyone sitting next to Robert Hayes in an airplane, 
and the Iranian stooge shoots himself in the head. Ed and Diana are then taken to a nearby hotel where they are given a hotel room and a suitcase full of money, all courtesy of Jack. They are told that they need to stay in the room for the next 24 hours, and they are free to leave. Ed lays down on the bed and finally falls asleep for the first time in days, because if you're going to be in a room with a soon-to-be-naked Michelle Pfeiffer, it's the first thing you want to do is fall asleep. He wakes to find that Diana and the money are gone, and he has slept for two days. When he goes to leave, he finds Diana waiting for him in the hallway. Their adventure is just beginning. And that is Into the Night. You made it sound interesting, Patrick. <laughs> it is interesting. It is a great fucking movie. No. Uh, and I didn't even have to reference that she was really actually naked earlier in the film. So, All right. Into the Night, released on February 22nd, 1985, the same month as Heavenly Bodies, Heaven Help Us, Mischief with a very naked Kelly Preston, Witness, Vision Quest, The Breakfast Club, Turk 182, and The Mean Season grossed about $7.5 million, so it was the 102nd highest-grossing film of 1985, right behind such classics as Daryl, Runaway Train, and one of Bobby's favorite films, He-Man and She-Ra and The Secret of the Sword, and right in front of The Trip to Bountiful, Transylvania 65000, and Red Sonja. And that is about all the numbers there is <laughs> into the night. There isn't a lot of good information. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 38% critics and 49% audience, but I know Shane doesn't even care for Rotten Tomatoes. So, all right, into the night. This is this is actually one of the films when we started this podcast many moons ago that I really wanted to review because no one ever has seen this movie. Every time I talk about this movie, everyone goes, "What is that? I don't know what you're talking about." For saw that and. Based off the box office gross, I'm not surprised. So, uh, Shane, I know you saw everything. Did you see this in the 80s, or was this? did you come to it later in life? Well, I did see it in the 80s, but did not see it uh, in the cinemas. It was released in Australia on the 18th of July, 1985. I um, checked my book and my old movie stubs, my tickets, and I hadn't seen it. And I didn't think I had. I remember, must have watched it on... VHS, if anything, because it certainly is a movie that was rediscovered many years later, because it's not one that was talked about. Even when it came out on VHS, I can't remember it being a popular one in the store I worked at. It was hard to find on DVD when DVD started to uh, bring out older films. Uh, I had seen it, but until watching it, I had watched it about two years ago, and then I watched it again for the podcast. So it it was just almost uh, new, new to me each time. Even though I'm, I'm sure, I'm positive, I had seen it back in the day, just not at the cinema. Bobby, help me out. You had to have seen this one. Um, Into the night, yes, I did. I, I saw it not in the theater, but I saw it on video cassette when it first came out in our video store. Um, I and it definitely had a feel for the mid '80s uh, when it first came out. It was, it was quite popular um because uh, if i remember right michelle pfeiffer was just starting to become popular and i mean she's michelle pfeiffer and uh and Je jeff goldblum was uh he was just starting to kind of become a, a bit of a name in his own right was this before or after the fly i can't remember this is before it, the fly after it, big chip 
Okay, yeah, because the big, yeah. the big chill. He was the most annoying character in the movie, I thought, but he he had a definite charisma about him, and I think it, it fit for this movie. But yeah, it, this is this is definitely something that it was it it wasn't really popular when it came out, and I think it just never gained ground after that. It just kind of kind of floated away. And that's why I think it's so hard to find. You can find it on VHS fairly easily online, but the DVD has only very recently started to get to be a reasonable price. I don't know if, Shane, did you find that when you were researching to buy it? Yeah, I've got the DVD, uh, and I must have bought it off Amazon uh, a few years ago because it's been in my collection a while. It's a special edition, but it has since been re-released on Blu-ray. I think by Shout Factory with us, you know, right. more extra features and and so forth on it. Because like I just like I was saying, it's been rediscovered because it was definitely not talked about for years. I mean, I yeah. I continued to watch eighties and movies right through the nineties and two thousands, but it was it's only been fairly recently that Into the Night has. I mean, you know it, Patrick, and I know it, of course, and you know it, Bobby. But overall, it's not an eighties movie that was the talk. No. back then. No, and I can't say that it ever was the talk, but I, I didn't catch it in the theater, mainly because it was R-rated, and I would have been 13 at the time of its release. But I do remember, I, I distinctly remember when we rented it, I rented it with my mom, who my, my brother and my dad were out of town, they went someplace, and it was just her and I at the time, and it, you know, I remembered Michelle Pfeiffer from Grease 2, uh, and it, I, Jeff Goldblum was nobody to me. I don't. I, I know I didn't see Big Chill at that point, and this is about a year before The Fly. So uh, you know, we we watched it, and I was like enthralled with this just nighttime adventure of these these two characters and the kind of the tour of L.A. And I thought it was an amazing film. And then I didn't see it again for probably the seven eight years. And by then I was an adult. I watched it again, and I loved it more the second time. And probably because I didn't remember Michelle Pfeiffer being naked in the, for the first time that I saw it, mm. but it definitely made an impression on me the second time I watched it. And it was, it, it just, everything, I just, you know, this kind of like, you never know what's going to happen in this film. And some of it is just so bizarrely strange, yet seems to fit into the storyline of this film that I really enjoyed the adventure of it and just kind of the, the mystery of it. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen, but to me... Watching it as an older viewer, it was more like a bunch of vignettes, like little short stints of comedy, then action, then I don't know what. Some some of it was a little bit odd, but that's John Landis yeah. in general, I reckon. I mean, you look at it in Wolf in London, I mean, there's elements of extreme comedy and then there's elements of extreme horror in that film, both in the same genre, and it both work, in my viewpoint, effectively well. Go. No, I, I, I was along the, the same lines oh, as no. Shane in that what I saw was a meandering storyline. It just kind of went, and it also felt like Landis kind of lost his way along the way in the way that he was presenting the story because even my wife watched uh, the first two-thirds of the movie and then she just got bored and, and walked away. But my feeling in the beginning was he was bored. He definitely couldn't sleep. And his wife, you know, ultimately we find out she's cheating on him. But he didn't have a bad life. He just was 
bored and uh and, and was losing his way because of the lack of sleep as soon as michelle pfeiffer shows up it just kind of went all over the place and i have to say and we'll get into them later but um by having so many cameos and so many directors playing key roles in the story i thought they took away from what could have been a fairly legible story and it became more of a uh, who's who and can i see such and such on screen um, versus a, a talented actor playing a role that could have made this movie better. Yeah, but the, identi- the identity of the directors in it, I mean, that's more for cinephiles like us yeah. who are going to go, oh, there's Jonathan Demme, you know, there's Jim Henson. I mean, that's that's us recognizing the people that we have seen in other films. It, you know, the first time I saw this, the only person I recognized other than John Landis himself, and I don't – I think I knew who John Landis was because he directed Thriller, and I watched the making of Thriller a couple of times, right. recognized him from that video, um, was Jim Henson. Yeah. You know, because he was the voice of Kermit. And as soon as I heard his voice, I'm like, that's that's Jim Henson. That's that's the guy who does Kermit, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, excuse me. I, I, I got to get off the phone here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, First of all, to uh, Bobby's point, um, before we started talking about the cameos, is I like the insomnia uh, starting plot point because insomniacs are irrational and yeah. uh, they, you know, they don't, they don't sort of, uh, they're not like everyone else. They walk through life obviously half asleep and they don't care about anything. They might hold down jobs, but insomniacs are that kind of person. So I think that's a good start to the story with him having this mundane uh, home life. But, you know, he was bored, like you say, but then meeting Michelle Pfeiffer sparks him up, even though he was still walking around half asleep. And with the cameos, I mean, I'm with Patrick. Many of the cameos I didn't recognise, even with this viewing. Uh, And as a kid, I wouldn't have known any of them. David Bowie would probably be it for me. Now I I recognise Paul Mazursky... Uh, of course, Jim Henson on the phone, but yeah, I, I the cameos wouldn't have meant anything to me back then either. Well, that's what I was saying is that I didn't recognize anybody back in nineteen the, the mid eighties when I watched it. I don't remember what year it was, but it was on VHS, and I do remember just in that time that it wasn't a bad movie and it wasn't a great movie. It just kind of was a so-so movie, and I and I attributed to the fact that it kind of lost me along the way it wasn't special and i think that's why i it it has gone away for so long was i think if you would have had some people that we would have recognized that would have had a a a bigger career um i I, and several of the little bit roles that were taken by directors that could have been some people starting out that were that might have had something going later on in life. I think it might have been a little bit more memorable, but that's all I'm saying. It's I'm not saying it's a, that it was bad to have them in there. And I definitely know the reason why was as a support for Landis after the Twilight Zone situation. But at the same time, it just it could have been such a, a more positive choice in casting. Well, yeah, but I don't think any of the supporting actors are other than Paul Mazursky. There we go. Who has <laughs> Uh, a support as a, a sizable pl- role playing a Hollywood producer or director, so it's not really a stretch for no, him. No. It, it is that not they don't really do much that I think they take away in any way, shape, or form as far as their acting performance. Yeah, they could have got a 
you know, a Screen Actors Guild uh, actor in it and in some capacity, and it may have been the, the kickoff to somebody's career, but I don't think it hurt the film or the storyline. The storyline has many faults, yeah. but yeah. it is not, you know, I think it, one of them is, I, I know one of the criticisms in this film that I read was that the cameos are distracting, and as, as I said, I think that's distracting for anyone who's really into movies and directors and knows who they are. Otherwise, they're just this random white guy playing this random role. You know, yeah. that's all it is, and it's probably white directors, so... Well, I, even I do vaguely remember uh, Vera Miles. She stuck, probably because I was a big Hitchcock fan and even as a kid loved Psycho. Mm. So that was lovely to see her at the end. I don't want to jump forward, you know, too much before we keep talking. But And Richard Farnsworth, I hadn't recognised, but I did this time watching it again. So, yeah, uh, the cameos, as we keep saying, really did nothing to enhance anything from my end of watching it. Well, now it's to my point is that by having cameos that we ultimately were looking for people, and and that's probably why people are still curious about it today is because it has so many cameos, is I think, and I'm not a Paul Mazursky fan, and I thought that his having him play that character, I thought he was poor as the person playing the director, but it just, I thought it was, it, he, he didn't do a very good job personally, um, but... I just think that having having more seasoned people in front of a camera, I think we would have been talking about this movie in a more positive light than we are today. Well, one of the things I want to discuss was your favorite cameo. Obviously, Bobby's is Paul Mazursky. <laughs> and the... <laughs> Is there a cameo that you did like in the film, Bobby? Oh yeah, no, it was it was <laughs> enjoyable to see so many different people that you know. Jake's was it Seinfeld? Jake, uh, the the bodybuilder. You know, I, he's I I forgot he was in this, and uh, I love Jim Henson. I've known about Jim Henson because I grew up on Sesame Street as a little kid when it first started, and that was special to see him just for that brief second. Uh, and I like Catherine Harold. I don't think she was special in this role, but I like her in other store in other uh, movies. So yeah, there were some good people that were in the movie. But you know, it, unfortunately, and, and I, I adore Michelle Pfeiffer, and I thought Jeff Goldblum played his character as best as he could. I thought it was so. Those weren't necessarily cameos; they had to carry the story. Yeah, same with me. I mean, David Bowie, I would yes. I would single out. Yeah. But that is a little bit. That's a little bit more of a. That's not really a cameo. That was more of a, another um, larger role. It was expand. It was an expanded cameo. Let's say uh, Paul Mazursky is is um, not as good at acting as he was. He appeared in a very funny scene when they were in the back lot, and I always remember Jeff Goldblum going to pick up the phone and talk on it, and then it gets carted away, and then he falls through the wall trying to talk to that girl. So. That that was amusing. Uh, I liked Dee Dee Pfeiffer. She didn't wasn't in it long, but I always liked remembered Michelle Pfeiffer's sister, lesser known sister, who also popped up in Vamp, the '80s vampire movie with the lovely Grace Jones, and she was also in Pretty Smart, which was a bit of a teen romp, not quite Porky's standard or Bachelor Party, but it was uh, it was up there as a VHS sex comedy of the '80s. I liked. So, yeah, um, I just think I missed out on a lot of the cameos. I didn't know who they were. Uh, Jim Henson, I recognised this time, as we mentioned. Um, but people like Jonathan Demme, I believe, was in it, and David Cronenberg. Uh, I'm not sure uh, mm -hmm. who they were. Um, 
unless I looked them up and cross-referenced, just watching it as a movie for entertainment, I uh, didn't spot them as much as I thought I'd like to. Vera Miles, definitely at the end, I thought that was great. Uh, yeah. But the, again, we keep bringing it up, the cameos were not, not enhancing any of the enjoyment to watch this film for me. Well, Jonathan Demi played the uh, tailor where the Iranians were getting new suits across the street from when they saw Jeff uh, Okay. That's Jonathan Demi. Uh, I know what David Cronenberg looks like, and I couldn't tell you where he is in this damn film. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and uh, Bobby, mentioned, uh, Bobby mentioned Jake so- uh, Steinfeld. That's the uh, uncle of Haley Steinfeld, the young actress who's around at the moment. Uh, she's been nominated for Golden Globes, and she was in most recently Pitch Perfect Three. Uh, but yeah, that's that's her uncle, so it's in the in the family. The acting. I did not know that. Yeah, no, it's not mentioned much, but I was aware when she was breaking through early in her career. Uh, was True Grit, especially that's when people started to notice her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, of course, in that brilliant remake of the John Wayne classic that the Coen Brothers did. Uh, yeah, it was brought up back then that the 80s actor Jake Steinfeld was related to Haley, her uncle. All right. Well, we've talked about the lovely Michelle Pfeiffer, and one of my that, and she's one of my favorite things about the film. I honestly, if you ask me what film that I think that she is the most beautiful in in all the films she's done, I would tell you this film, not because she just gets naked in it for a little bit. I just. <laughs> Uh, you know, did, what did you guys think of her in this film as far as her acting performance as well as the way she looked? I, I'm not going to even ask the, the, you know, the the old joke of ours, is, was she 80s hot? Because I know she was, and there's going to be no question of that. But what did you think of her in this film and, uh, you know, her performance? You don't like Scarface, do you, Patrick? Because you know, she was pretty I hot hate, in that. I hate Scarface. <laughs> uh, that's what I thought. So... You you won't rate that with her. I think she was pretty hot in that too. You know, I agree. She's she's always been gorgeous, even now, later in yeah. life. I mean, that's not you know everyone does age, and but she she just still looks fantastic. If I've got to single out one or two movies where I thought she looked fantastic and irresistible in, I would say probably Fabulous Baker Boys. That that stood out, I think, because of her role as well in that. And uh, the, a movie that a lot of people forgotten about, maybe I, I haven't because I've always liked it, Tequila Sunrise <laughs> with uh, Mel Gibson, Ozzy and um, Kurt Russell. She was uh, really, really smoking hot in that too. So, But she's all just as well as that, I'm not being sexist or anything. I always think she's been a great actress and she's ageing fantastic. I mean, Witches of Eastwick, there's another one I could nominate too. She looks so great in. Uh, but now I saw her in Mother and Murder on the Orient Express only last year. Uh, I, I can't fault her. She's a great actress and she's stunning to look at still. Yeah, actually, Shane took both of mine. Um, I, my number one is actually Tequila Sunrise because I thought that her, I know that she plays a lot of yes. vamp, vamp-like roles like this, uh, like Into the Night in some of the other roles, but I thought Tequila Sunrise, she was very refined and carried herself with such a professional 
um, air about her. She was, and she was just, it was like looking at the sun when she was on screen. It was amazing. Uh, even with the body double um, in the hot tub, it, she was just special. And yeah, I, I'm totally yep. on, on board with the fabulous, fabulous Baker boys. Boys, um, the piano scene has been parodied so often that uh, people lose the fact that it was actually from a serious movie and it was a very serious song. And I thought she not, knocked it out of the park. So those are the two that I would put her in. I totally agree with both of you guys, though. She's she's one of those rare actresses, I think, of her generation that not only was supermodel beautiful and could carry you know Revlon by herself but she could really act and she you could put her in uh as as somebody that was a homeless person that was you know that you wouldn't even recognize in uh on the street and she would shine through that all of the makeup it's just so yeah she's she's special and i i think we're lucky to have had her in our generation well, you talk about her like she's gone. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, and, and my kids actually loved her in Stardust. They thought she was hilarious in that one as the uh, the witch that keeps aging, and that was a lot of fun to see her play that kind of a role too. Because it, it is similar to Witches of Eastwick, but she's she's just somebody that when she's on screen, she just lights it up, and I I enjoy that about her. Yeah, oh, I was just quickly going to say two quotes. I've always remembered her saying. And this is a, this is just something that I've known for years. It's not something I've just read now for the podcast or anything. She always says, and she's she's been quoted as saying she thinks she looks like a duck. <laughs> always, as she calls herself, she reckons she looks like a duck. And the other quote is she every time she sees someone having a cigarette because she smoked for years and years and years and gave up cold turkey, but now. She's uh, been. She said in interviews that every time she sees someone with a cigarette, she instantly wants one. She has to like walk away. Uh, so I just found those two quotes interesting, and I've known known that for years. Makes me want to take up smoking. Um, but <laughs> well, she was with Fisher Stevens of all people for decades. I mean, that guy. I can't believe that at all. Yeah, and Peter Horton uh, yes, from the yes. TV show Thirty Something. And they they appear in a uh, comedy skit together in Amazon Women on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot she been in that. Yeah, well that's well that's another one that John Landis had had something to do with. There was a whole lot of directors, but her uh, her little role in that has got uh, Griffin Dunn, Peter Horton, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. She has a she's in she's in a hospital and she has a baby and the doctor brings it in and it's a Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> It's been far long. I don't think I've seen that one in since the '80s, so I don't even know. I'm assuming I would have known. That was late '80s, so I would have known who she was at that point. So. I know Chris. Uh, Chris, one of our fellow MHM Lunchtime Movie Review members, loves it as well. So if he's listening, he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And Bobby, you mentioned uh, Stardust. That's one of three movies that I'm aware of that um, she, Michelle Fiverr, has worked with Robert De Niro because she was in The Family. Uh, it was a black comedy yeah. made a few years ago, which I actually didn't mind. I thought it was quite funny, directed by Luc Besson, the French director, yeah. uh, and Stardust, of course, which we mentioned. And she was in that television, HBO, I think it was HBO movie, The Wizard of Lies, last year or the year before. What about uh, Jeff Goldblum? Now, he's, I mean, he's not the Jeff Goldblum of the 90s where he's appearing in all blockbusters. 
but uh, it's somewhat of unusual casting, considering that Landis wanted went after Nicholson, who turned down the role, went uh, wanted Gene Hackman, and the studio said that he wasn't bo- enough box office ma- uh, material. They, they box office was too small for him, so they went with essentially a, a relative unknown, although he wasn't completely unknown, Jeff Goldblum. What did you guys think of him in the film? I thought that he played the character fine. Um, I, I've never been a, a huge Goldblum fan. I know it, because he plays similar characters in almost all of his movies. He's not unlikable in any way. He's just he's very much like Ed in this story. I mean, I I, I see him uh, throughout his career very similar to this. Um, it, he, I, I can't believe that they chose him over Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was has been around, was carrying movies, or at least was big parts of movies in the seventies, the early seventies. So like the conversation and uh, um, oh, another one, French where, Connection. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Uh, but he was the main character, whether he was a heavy or a, an, uh, an anti-hero. But he definitely would have been a bigger star than I thought Jeff Goldblum would have been. Uh, and I also uh, I read online that when Nicholson was approached by Landis or had been offered the role, he called Landis out to his house in Colorado, made him drive through a snowstorm, and then turned him down. So I, if that's true, I thought that was pretty cold-hearted <laughs> to do that to a director. But uh, it's, you know, it, I, I thought he was fine. I, I just, the movie the movie itself was fatally flawed, I thought, uh, from the storyline. So he did the best he could with what he had, and I, I can't fault him in any way. Well, I think you guys were saying that Jack Nicholson turned it down because it, it was boring or yeah. it wasn't interesting or something. Right. Is that correct? Well, the, the, Nicholson's the, the, right. It's not that I dislike Jeff Goldblum at all. I mean, he's he's quite good in this. He doesn't do anything wrong. And I remember him in, you know, Thank God It's Friday and a few other little films. I would have seen The Big Chill. I remember seeing The Big Chill before this as well. So I was aware of who he was. Uh, but Jane Nicholson's right. It's, it's not a role that does much. It, it kind of sways into a few little character developments towards the end because the character... Uh, of Ed breaks out a little bit from his shell and he's outside of his comfort zone. But I think Nicholson was a little bit more, uh, would have wanted to do a little bit more with the role and maybe John Landis didn't have the budget or something either. Well, and I can agree with that as well. For your protagonist, he's not active. I mean, he's, I don't want to say sleepwalking through the role. He really is. But everything is happening around him, and he's just merely reacting to it, and he doesn't actually become active, essentially until they get to Jack's house in the last quarter of the film. And then it seems like he comes up with a plan. He's 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 volunteering to help Diana. He's committed to helping her out at that point in time where he hasn't been that committed throughout the rest of the film. He's just kind of gone with the flow. and And I can see that criticism of the character, but I also think it's it's kind of like the ambivalence he feels is you can understand that he's just, you know, whatever, you know, he, he's numb to the world and that's what he's essentially communicating through the, the entire film up until even when he drives the Iranian to suicide at the end of the film. Yeah. With uh-huh. Mike Lee, you know, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's strange to me because I, by no means do I think Jeff Goldblum and Gene Hackman, I think of in the same vein, even now, 
uh, when they're both well-established and been actors for decades. But back in the 80s, Gene Hackman would have been the uh, easily the first pick. And I can't see Gene Hackman, who did like every other movie in the 80s, turning it down if they would have actually approached him. Yeah, that's true, because as great as Hackman was, and I don't mind some of them, but he has some questionable comedies on his resume from the oh, 80s. I do like Loose Cannon, though. I've told <laughs> you that before. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but Transylvania 65,000, I mean, that, that was the same year as, as this, and Jeff Goldblum was in that. Uh, so, you know, Release. there was a little... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I remember seeing that as well. I, I just mustn't have seen this at the time. It was probably a little bit afterwards. Uh, I don't think it was a big hit in Australia. Transylvania 65,000 or Into the Night? Both. I think Transylvania 65,000 probably rented more. Oh, I, I guarantee you. I remember, you know, I remember that coming out theatrically. remember previews for that film. I don't remember a preview for all. This came out of nowhere. I don't think yeah. Into the Night is a hit or well seen by the the Pfeiffer and Goldblum families. I mean, I just don't think that it exists. No one saw it. It just it just slid through. Yeah, and I think that was I think that's what is uh, sad about this movie because it didn't. Did you bring up the budget for it? Because it looked like it was an expensive movie to create. Because to basically desert L.A. at least the scenes that they were in for pretty much the first half of the movie every scene there was nobody in there but your protagonists or your antagonists there was nobody else and maybe that was part of the dreamscape setting for an insomniac i'm not sure how that was in there and for it to just kind of go away with little fanfare and like shane said it it's just recently started to come out on blu-ray where people are starting to discover it again I think I don't know if it's necessarily discoverable because of the lack of support from all the people that were involved in it. It, it, it took me a long time to get the DVD, and I will say I probably got the DVD after Blu-ray came around, and it just I happened to stumble across it in a store, and I'm like, oh, I love that film, and all I have is a VHS copy, and I don't have a VHS player anymore, so that's kind of the problem. <laughs> and so I, you know, I picked it up. I did. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you do. With your library, you need to have one. Uh, I've converted everything, thankfully, so I don't have to worry about that any longer. But uh, it just recently re- was released on digital on Vudu for the first time a couple months ago, and uh, that's that's been my most recent purchase to put it on air so I can stream it anywhere I want to. Uh, but I, I still love this film. I love the yes. locale of Los Angeles. It hits a lot of the bigger areas of Los Angeles, some of the you know the uh, the landmarks. The, you know I can always forget the donut place, but the donut. Pl- you know, like all. You know, Rodeo Drive, Beverly Hills. You know, you get you get Malibu Beach. I mean, you're ca- catching some of the the very nice, uh, unusual areas of Los Angeles, and it's just even the airport aspect of it is just it's very amazing to see. So uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's it. LAX hasn't changed. Every time you see it in a movie, <laughs> it's the same probably will never change you know in lifetimes until they build expand on it again and again and again um but that's one of the things similar to where 
like Ferris Bueller's Day Off is kind of a yes. love letter to Chicago and hits all the highlights. That's that's how I feel about this film is that it it's you know it it gives you a visual tour of Los Angeles while you're going through this little uh, mystery of it. What well, what did you guys think of that? I I totally agree. The cinematography was one of the highlights for me. And I don't know if this is a fact, but I'm pretty sure they must have just filmed uh, 90% at night in actual locations and using their budget to block off streets and so forth so they did have it to themselves. Because like you say, it was a, it was like a trip down memory lane, a trip around L.A. that you've seen in other movies, but there's always people around. And this was fairly empty and solitary and it worked for the film uh, not 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 in every scene of course but the diner scene was another one that was that's a diner i'm sure i've seen in other movies and it was good the cinematography was a highlight uh, very looked very nice on the dvd i, I agree it's yeah i agree 100 percent with you guys this is a love letter to la most definitely and to see it in mid 80s it full on what it looked like uh, and with nobody around, that is so rare to see. It, it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Night of the Comet, how they vacated street, uh, streets for that. So that was really special to see the the iconic locales with nobody around. So that was fun. Um, but what I did notice, though, was storyline-wise, was every time that they were driving around, they had all the streets to themselves, uh, the the buildings to themselves nobody was around when they were just kind of bantering but as soon as they had something important for the story some sort of plot device they would pull over and there'd be a ton of people around and they would just then they just spill their guts out case in point was the dd pfeiffer scene was then she start all of a sudden starts telling him all about what she did over in europe and so on when people were around when they had the entire night driving around to speak, so it, all of that uh, it, it didn't make any sense to me, and I think that's why I, I struggled with the story of it. Beauty aside, um, because that was the, the cinematography I thought was one of the best in the '80s. You just don't see it like that. I and your uh, point of Ferris Bueller is perfect of Chicago versus L.A. This is really special for that. All right, Bobby. Uh, both of you and Shane have articulated problems with the story, which I'll acknowledge that there there are, but. What is what are some of the issues that you have with this film as far as story wise? Uh, number one is you have a guy that pretty much had a, a fairly decent life, and uh, obviously you know marital status aside, and and his he was his insomnia was affecting his job. He had a pretty good life going for him. He threw that all away in one night to be with a woman that was so flighty and everybody in the entire movie, throughout the entire movie, is saying she leaves everybody at the drop of a hat. I know she had her five-year uh, liaison with the uh, the rich guy, but the truth is is she was a kept woman where he only when he was in town would she come to him. Otherwise, she's on her own. Um, her own brother hates her. Uh, he throws her out. Um, basically, she's just trouble everywhere she turns. And Jeff Goldblum is all of a sudden smitten forever. And the end, I mean, spoiler alert, um, but when there, he wakes from two days away, there's three quarters of a million dollars sitting there. She's gone. He, he knows she's gone. And then she reappears. To be honest, the fact at the end where uh, if they were to end up out of country and she has that kind of money, he's he's a, in her rearview mirror at that point. 
plus all of the um, Iranian, the racism that they were throwing in was really difficult. And basically, anywhere you turn, those idiots were behind her um, or them. Um, The cops were inept. They allowed a perfect stranger to walk into a crime, a murder scene, and just take uh, evidence and walk out with... I mean, it's, it's all of those things as a story, put it all together, it just isn't a good movie. Uh, let me tell you that I wish that police <laughs> didn't do that, but they do. True, true, but so. it just... Uh. All right, Shane, I'm sure you have your little points as well. Uh, yeah, just a few little ones. I don't want to write it off completely because it's, no. it's not a bad movie, and I did enjoy watching it. There's, there's, there's high aspects about it. But I wanted... To, well, firstly... I think the uh, chemistry between Dan Aykroyd and Jeff Goldblum <laughs> at the start it was sorely missed later yes. on. It was fun. It was funny, and it was a great little start, and they were, they were opposites. You know, it was chalk and cheese, and I thought it was hilarious. That, that, that More of that would have been great. Instead, we got Jeff Goldblum ambling around aimlessly in the middle of the night. There's something about Jules... Uh, the, the bumbling, uh, the bumbling hitmen and them—that uh, that wasn't funny. I, I don't know if it was shooting a parrot. Was that supposed to be funny? Uh, it didn't. Didn't. This gangster thing didn't work for me, and I didn't care for the characters. I mean, uh, good to look at Michelle Pfeiffer, and nice to spot a few cameos. Nothing wrong with Jeff Goldblum, but he had very little to work with in the script and he did his best but it was just a whole uh, one murder after another and aimless laughs for me mostly aimless laughs or endless laughs <laughs> aimless like they were aiming for high high concept comedy or pratfalls or slapstick at times and it just fell flat for me well I, I like it for the fact that it's a film a, a dark comedy I disagree with I like the Iranian assassins. I, I, I like the fact that they can't open a single door throughout the entire film and end up trying to shoot it out almost every single time. I, I think that's a, a reoccurring joke that actually works kind of well. Um, <laughs> as far as for the purposes of the film, they, the jewels were supposed to be from Iran, and it went with the you know top of, you know the, topically during the time that some of the jewels were stolen during the. Uh, regime change in the late 70s so that seemed to make sense so that wasn't too hard to follow i did, I, I didn't see it as necessarily racist uh i i did i love yes, david bowie yes. in the film <laughs> he's probably my favorite yeah, actor in yeah, the yeah film. i agree he he was just i love the scene on rodeo drive <laughs> where he's talking to uh jeff goldblum and he's just so polite you know and just <laughs> And so complimentary, and then he pulls out the gun and puts it in his mouth, and it's just like, wow, this, you know, this is really sinister. And even when you know his ultimate demise in the hotel room is that that scene, I think plays off so so well and is very entertaining as well. And the only two scenes he's in the film, but both really effective and probably my my favorite acting performance in the film. Um, I, I I don't think. I don't think that Jeff Goldblum has nothing to do. I really don't. I think he he's supposed to play this insomniac who kind of is just, as I already said, is kind of just numb to life and is allowing things. That's how he is at home. Things just happen to him when he's at work. Things just happen to him. And that carries over to this little adventure he has with 
with Diana, and uh, and and he that's the evolution of his character. Is at the end of the film, he starts to be proactive. He starts to do things. He starts to take control of his life. I one of the things I was going to ask you guys, and Bobby's already mentioned that you know always he's instantly smitten. I don't see that. I don't see a romance between Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer. Obviously, it could be implied from it, but other than her giving him that kiss while he's sleeping. There's nothing in the entire film. He doesn't seem to be doing this because he's, you know, romantically interested in her. He he just seems to be doing it because he has nothing better to do, and his life is dull and uninteresting. And he's just going along for the ride. And as much as she may disappear for a little bit at the end of the film, I, you know, I never thought it was like, oh, he's disappointed because he lost the love of his life. And I don't think that she has that same kind of affection. It seems to be throughout the film they say she refers to him as. His, his her friend and he refers to her as his friend and I honestly believe that I, I that's one of the things I like about this film that a romance is not necessary to the story and isn't really possibly even realistic to the characters that the, the situations they're in so uh, that's that, that's one of the it's one of the many things I like about it now that <laughs> being said it's there's many there are many things that I think they're at fault the the mystery of who's chasing after him goes on too long. And then is as much as I appreciate the the you know, audience taking a journey with the characters, you know, trying to figure out why is this happening to these characters. The ultimate reveal is just going to Jack. Jack just gives them all right. the answers, and that is an uninteresting uh, solution to that problem to me. Is that uh, wow, you 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 finally get to Jack, and Jack is the answer man, and uh, an answer to literally everything. For the remainder of the film, as he he sets in motion behind the scenes, which we, which we don't see, you know, Shaheen getting arrested, um, very likely the police and everyone being at the airport, um, and saving the two of them at the end by giving them all the money so they can go off and start their own life together or their own lives separate, whatever they want to choose to do, is that that to me is the last quarter of the film, last 15% of the film is a little unsatisfying because it's. It is just a rush to a resolution, and Jack is the answer man, Mr. Exposition, to provide all the answers that we've been seeking for, seeking for throughout the entire. But I think film. that's where they lost their way through the shoot was because, like we all mentioned, David Bowie was, I think, he was by far the best bad guy role in the movie, and he was used so little, and he, he just disappeared halfway through the story. And was gone for the rest of the story. He didn't die. He just disappeared. Um, and I think that's the problem that we have is that when you have interesting characters that are worthy of continuing through the story, continuing the chase, whatever, you know, David Bowie would have been a wonderful hitman to show up at the end uh, at the airport. Would have been really fun. The other thought that process that I have too is that when you have a supposed real estate tycoon, uh, you know, crook, high crook, high level crook. And they're hiring idiots to kill people that are, I mean, honestly, they're spraying bullets everywhere, <laughs> you know, as, as, as slapsticky yeah. as that's supposed to be to me, I was watching John Landis through most of the scenes that he was in and he was a buffoon and it wasn't funny to me. I just saw somebody trying to be funny when you have, when it wasn't funny and i think that's what was taking me out of the story was there were they were so worried about putting so many cameos and so many uh little 
like Shane said, vignettes put together into it that I think that they lost their way to why they had to tie it up at the end with such a pat, fast, you know, give them all the money right now, send them off out of the country and end of the story and wasn't that great. So I, I think that's where they lost me. Again, I'm not saying that this is a bad movie. I'm just saying that it's not a great movie that it could have been. And I think it just kind of falls between the cracks for a reason. Right. Do you think it's a romance film? No. I I think it's impl- I think it's implied, like you said, and but it did occur to me that he would have slept with her, but he also respected her. She kept him on for the ride, but there were times where she he was looking at her, and then she'd save him from the police and pull up in the car and say, "Oh, hi, hi, honey, you know, I've been waiting for you or whatever." Just to you know, that they, they were a team, a good team. And I think it was more mutual respect that would have happened. The romance would have happened if they had time. They had no time. There was always sort of they had to be on the on the run or whatever. I do think it was a, a quasi romance, not your traditional type. I agree with that. I, I think that this is more of a buddy movie than it is uh, romance, with with hints of romance. Obviously, I mean she's unattainable physically, but they did have a, a certain chemistry between them when they were on screen together. Uh, I think he was just. I think he was distracted. Yeah. His character was definitely distracted by what was going on around them, and she seemed to be a little more sure of herself going through. Because obviously, these were all people she knew, and she happened to know like everybody in L.A. And he knew nobody. So you know, you're going you're going through the whole thing, and and it, it's just she's she's the bullet going straight ahead, and he's just kind of weaving behind her, following, following, following. And and I guess that's where Jack Nicholson was right. Uh, he doesn't really have a direction and isn't really a strong lead in that in that manner. But I, I still think that there was there was supposed to be a hint of romance between the two, and that's why at the end, my feeling would have been that they would have been going off where he would have been thinking he's going off with her in a romantic manner, and she would have been going off with the money. So I, that's how I would have taken it, how I did take it. Yeah, I, I thought it was more romantic back in the 80s than, than it is today. Oh, yeah. It would be interesting interesting to sort of maybe, that not that it will ever happen, but if there was a sequel or a continuation on what their characters would be doing now, would they be together? Would they still be friends? It would no, be, be good to know. In my viewpoint, they never ended up together because yeah, Michelle okay. – up with me, right? How the way right. that's all I want. So I have the <laughs> she has the money, everything's fine. So, John Landis's career <laughs> has been hot and cold throughout the entire career, but he was he was kind of on a roll with obviously Blues Brothers and Animal House and American Werewolf. But with the tragedy of Twilight Zone, this coming after that, uh, maybe he was calling in all these cameos and and just to, to sort of get him on the right side of Hollywood again? I, I don't know. There was a lot of people upset at what had happened on the Twilight Zone set. Yeah, and that's one of the working theories is that's why he had all the, the – it was a show of support from the, kind of the directors and the Directors Guild for yeah, right. by doing all these cameos in this film. But, I, you know, I, I don't know if that was truly necessary. I, that I don't – because the directors – you know, it, maybe it's a show of solidarity behind the scenes, but I, I don't know why why that why they think that that's the case because it just he it, he did have some hits prior to that and 
And, and then he had the Twilight Zone, and I'm trying to think of when Thriller was. It was, I believe, it was before Twilight Zone, but I'm trying to. Um, that was eighty. That was the early '80s. Before this, definitely. Um, Twilight Zone it, was eighty. I thought I want to say it was eighty-two. Yeah, because Twilight Zone I think was eighty-three, and then Trading Places came in as well, and just after this, uh, and American Werewolf was eighty-one. So I would say 82 must have been Thriller. Yeah, I mean, that seems about right. It seems that's in my going into my junior high years around that time. But, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy who, uh, you know, had, I'm looking at 83, Trading Places, and I had to look it up, sorry. I hate to be one of those IMDb guys. Trading Places, 1983. Twilight <laughs> Zone, 1983. Michael Jack- Jackson's Thriller, 1983. He's didn't go anywhere. I mean, he has arguably one of the biggest hits of his career come out in 1983 with Trading Places. And sh- shortly after Into the Night, comes back with Coming to America with Eddie Murphy again, which is one of the biggest films of that year. So, oh, God, I forgot he made Spies Like Us. Oh, that was a horrible movie. <laughs> I mean, he was – I agree with you that he is very hit and miss, and I, I, and I can't do anything but say that this is a miss. But he – I mean, he was a, a very talented comedic director, and this is one of his genre-pushing films is where he's kind of branching out a little bit. And I think he's – I don't understand why they think that he needed this show of support. Obviously, the career was still there. Um, he got two of the biggest films uh, – you know, well, Michael Jackson's Thrill wasn't the biggest film, but it was the biggest music video that year, and he got a lot of notoriety just for that alone. Um, he may not. He, 1984 he may have taken off because I believe the civil suit uh, for the Twilight Zone uh, accident was that was that year. But uh, he came back in '85, and he even makes Spies Like Us in 1985 as well. So he, he made two films in 1985. He's still very prolific. Spies Like Us, I did see at the cinema. That is in my special book. But the, the thing is, this this movie Into the Night might have had the most director cameos that he's ever had, but he does that anyway. He did it before. If you Blues Brothers has cameos in it, uh, I, I know that he did after that as well. Coming to America, that has cameos in it. So obviously he called friends for this. But John Landis was in a bit of a uh, limbo of career, I guess, when it came to behind the scenes. So he just wanted to keep working because after the tragedy, you know, that that could that could be the end of a director's life, uh, career, if, if things like that happen on set. So he managed to keep working. Uh, and and the and maybe the answer to it is they work they work for cheap <laughs> too. It's that they don't they they get yeah. scale and they live in the neighborhood. It's all filmed in Los Angeles. They can come down and make their appearance and then move on and. You know that there's a certain aspect of that. I love the idea of directors being uh, kind of like a little fraternity and uh, viewing each other's work and giving feedback on it. Uh, that 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 they that they have that kind of camaraderie and that they help each other out gives you know gives me a that it's not such a cutthroat view of Hollywood as you know sometimes people make it to believe and that they everyone wants the other other to do really well and john landis is reported to be a pretty nice guy i mean it's never been i've never heard anybody say anything bad about him uh other than potentially that they didn't follow safety measures when they made twilight zone that was about it and i don't know if that was necessarily his fault he was just the director and that's who got sued 
Yeah, and I think the interviews that I've heard with John Landis, he knows his stuff. He's been around a long time. So he came through the Hollywood system at a, at a time where people had to work together. It's, it's a little bit easier now in, a, in respect to back when trying to get movies made and the, the system was different and it was more independent. You know, Animal House was, a lot of that was all improvised and, and so forth and other things he's done. And he was brought up in the Spielberg and George Lucas era, Peter Bogdanovich. So they're all got each other's backs. Martin Scorsese, they were all around that same time. I, I think that might be why, though, this one had such a lukewarm response was that he kind of tied all of that into this is a, a little bit of a free reign situation. Let's let's start with a script and then as we're going along let's change the script so we can throw in as the kitchen sink uh with all of my friends that i just called this morning and said hey i got a spot for you because i just wrote it into the script that's just the feeling that i have in this movie and i totally agree he's a he's a, a good director he's, he's quite good um i like most of what he does it's just that because Comedy, and in his case, I think he tries to do slapstick a little more than a lot, which I know Bogdanovich did that, and so people from that time frame, uh, directors of that time frame, they tended to err more on the side of trying to be funny rather than using a script naturally to be, be a funny story. Mm. And I think that's where this movie, it, it fell into that gap between slapstick and a good story. And it, it just didn't it didn't mesh well in my my opinion. It was almost farcical, but it wasn't. I don't know if that's the proper term. But uh, once again, my feeling is is that being the I, Iranians or, or Iraqis that were it was they were such a big part of the story as the antagonists that kept pushing and pushing and pushing them in a direction, and they kept throwing in more and more and more antagonists until you basically. I was losing track of who was on what side, and at the end, I didn't really care. I just wanted to see them end positively and watch watch people that I like on screen. That's about it. Yeah, All right. I, I totally, I totally understand why it wasn't a hit back then. I'm glad it's being revisited, and because of the cast in it, and it, it is, it's a curiosity mm -hmm. piece. It looks good, but yeah, I can totally understand why it didn't do well back when it was first released. And obviously the studio didn't think so too because they must have shelved it for a long time and since brought it back out. Did, what, did you, what did you guys think of the score? The the music that was by Ira Newborn. It was very 80s synth. Do you think it was standard or did you like it? Bobby, you got this first. Sure. Um, I, I thought it was fitting for the for 1985. <laughs> what I notice on the D, on the DVD that I've got, it, it just it's not something that I am going to be humming, and it's definitely not Thriller from a couple of years earlier that will be with us forever. One thing I did notice is on the the cover of the DVD it says includes the award winning documentary for BB King's Into the Night, which yeah. is the opening song, and I. I if you're a jazz fan, I'm sure you would love this, but I to put that on the cover of your DVD 30 years later is baffling to me. It just doesn't because it's it's an average 
movie soundtrack to me. Nothing special, including the BB King song. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I will say that it introduced me to BB King, and I like BB King. I, you know, I, lo- and this was the first time I was exposed to any of his music. I do like. Uh, a couple of his songs in the film. I don't necessarily like the score. I like the soundtrack. Um, it is a very uh, uh, got a very bluesy sound to it, and um, and I will say that I have the the I don't have the soundtrack, but I have those songs from other pl- other sources on my iPod because it's it's music. I do like <laughs> I do like Baby King. So, well, I, I was more. Um focusing on the score by Ira Newborn. The music was very 80s synth, and, and in the end it got a bit grating. But now you mentioned B.B. King. Yeah, it, I'm not a big jazz fan, but I like B.B. as well. And it, it did its job. It was okay. And as another fact, B.B. King was in the John Landis movie, Amazon Women on the Moon. He's also in a, a comedy skit. <laughs> because everybody loves working with John Landis. That's just the way it is. Yes. Obviously, and yes. that's a good thing. You know, it's really good that he's he's got the friendship, uh, and he has a good career reputation. He doesn't make too many movies anymore, but he's got a great career. And this 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 one's just one of these oddity movies that has luckily been revisited. Uh, otherwise, it could have just completely been forgotten about. Um, just don't be Vic Morrow or do a helicopter scene with him. That's all you have to do. That's. Yeah, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll see Jennifer Jason Lee in any of his films. That's for sure. No. Are they related? Uh, Vic Morrow uh, was, is, is the father of Jennifer Jason. I Lee. did not. I did not know that. Was the father? Wow, I did not know that. I hope she doesn't listen to the show. Oh, that's, uh... <laughs> I have full respect for Jennifer Jason Lee. I absolutely oh, adore. I, I love her. Oh yes, she's amazing as an actress. Yeah. Uh, one of the. Un- Underappreciated films of the '90s is Rush with her and Jason Patrick, and I think she's phenomenal in that film. Yep, and and that's just the beginning of a list of films that I think she's great in. Not so great in Backdraft. Yes, eh, it's oh, it's eh. like the movie. Oh. Uh, she was just a love interest in that, though. The movies that, that are centered around her as as the main character or the at least the main love interest, she's wonderful in it. So. She she can carry a movie by herself if she wants to. I I remember her years ago in a TV. One of her first roles was in TV where she was the anorexic girl, and I thought she knocked that out of the park. She was fantastic, and that was when she was probably fourteen, fifteen years old. She was great. All right, well let's go around wrap it up. Although I think we've all articulated our thoughts. What do you think of Into the Night? Did you like it back then, and do you think it stands the test of time, Bobby? Uh, nineteen mid eighties. <laughs> yes, I I liked it. I I do remember. I definitely remembered it from watching it, and I remembered it though more of a romantic comedy and a little more on the the. I, I didn't remember as much slapstick. I just remembered a really great cinematography of L.A. Just loving that time and seeing those cityscapes was stunning. Back then on VHS buying the DVD and watching it this is the first time I've seen it again uh, since that time and I don't believe that it stands the test of time as a story but as a time capsule it this 
is a, a must-see of L.A. if you love that kind of, of setting. I think that the characters are definitely interesting enough. I think that they can... Uh, it, it's definitely worth watching just to see how they progress through the story. Seeing all those people that are are normally behind the camera, in front of the camera, is was it was nice to see them. I still think that they were miscast. I think it could have been a better story without all of that. And I definitely think they lost their way with certain bad guys that could have been fantastic, like David Bowie. But I think it's worth watching. Like I said before, it's not a great movie. It is not at all a bad movie. I just think it's kind of one of those... Uh, it, it fell between the cracks for a reason. I think it's wise that they're bringing it back out again slowly. And the DVD and Blu-ray, I'll, I haven't seen the Blu-ray, but I'll bet it's got to be just as gorgeous or better. So, yeah, I think it's worth watching uh, once. I don't think you'll put it in your library forever, but uh, definitely worth it. And anything with with Michelle Pfeiffer is is going to be special simply because she's a wonderful actress, not just because of, of her her looks, but she can she can really act. So it's fun to see her at a younger age. Shane? Yeah, because I'm a, a bit vague of when I actually first saw it, I think I liked it. I know I did watch it on VHS, but I'm not sure exactly when. It would have been at least a year or two after it initially came out. And... Watching it again it brought back a few memories. There were certain aspects I remembered, but to me it's still just a little series of vignettes and little little happenings, and some of them are funny, most of them are not. I love the look of it. I really did. I, I don't have the Blu-ray, but I've got the DVD, and that looks gorgeous, so I can imagine what the Blu-ray has been enhanced to look like. And there's an early stage in the film where Michelle Pfeiffer introduces herself to Jeff Goldblum and says... Diana, like Princess Diana. And there's this close-up of Michelle Pfeiffer just looking sensational. That is an image that carries the whole film. I think she's lovely. And Bowie, he must have just been doing a favour because Jim Henson was in it and he was doing um, Labyrinth at the same time, maybe. You know, I'm not sure. But more Bowie would have been good, more Dan Aykroyd would have been good, and a bit more in plot department would have been good but overall it just stands the test of time because it's a curiosity piece i, I recommend people to see it especially if they haven't seen it before um, but it's not one of one of those ones that you can watch on repeat viewings all right I, i'm going to counter bobby and say that it is one in my library forever uh, it's one I've owned <laughs> in VHS, now on digital. I'll probably skip Blu-ray because I already have it on the my Vudu account. But it, it is it's an enjoyable little piece. Now, I am seeing it drastically different than what I did in the 80s and the 90s, probably even the early 2000s, and the fact that I'm, more, I'm much more critical of the storyline and the faults it does have. I do love just the idea of this nighttime adventure of these two characters where just you don't know what's around the next corner or you don't even know what's going on. And it just is – I find the, the film is so interesting. Now, that works the first time you see it. And if you haven't heard the entire plot line in a podcast that you're listening to, uh, <laughs> you, you take that a journey uh, for the first time and, and <laughs> not have it spoiled for you like we've done for you tonight. Uh, but it it is – a great film. I, I, it's one of the few films I do like Jeff Goldblum in. I'm not a big Jeff Goldblum fan. That would be Chris. 
I am a big Michelle Pfeiffer fan, and not just for the way she looks. I think she's an amazing actress. I just think she looks. I think this is. I think she looks absolutely gorgeous in this particular film. Let alone the very, very quick and brief nude scene that is. Even to this day, I'm kind of like, did she, she really did that? I, I, you know, this wasn't. That wasn't a body double. That was her. You know, and including retrieving the diamonds, which when I was a kid, I didn't get what she was doing. I was like, what is she doing? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I didn't get that one probably. Well, well, I've never heard. I think you called it a, what was it? A personal handbag or a nature's handbag. Nature's how I've never heard of the, (laughs) that, that particular body part described as that. (laughs) Oh boy. Thanks Patrick for enlightening me yet again. There you go. As long as you know all the, the, basically the descriptions used in law enforcement when they're uh, doing the strip searches and body cavity searches before someone goes into a jail. So, Ah, something in nature's handbag. So, uh, there you go. All right. (laughs) But I do think it, I loved it back then. I do think it stands the test of time. I, 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 I will not say it's a great film. I agree with Bobby. It is not a great film. It is a good film. It's an entertaining film. It is worth Mm -hmm. a watch. Yep. Yep. Uh, and yep. uh, I think even Shane, well, Shane's saying it's, I, don't, I say it's more than a curiosity piece, but it is, if for nothing else, it's just a, a, an entertaining journey that you can take and you don't know where it's necessarily going to go. And it, it doesn't follow, I don't believe that you could qualify it or count it as a film that seems to be very uh, stereotypical or follow a, a formula in any way, shape, or form, because you just don't know where it's going. For so much of it, it, it ends with a Hollywood ending, but it doesn't. It doesn't appear it's going to start that way, uh, and last for most of the film. The stones are from the scepter of an ancient Persian king. Remember when the Shah fell and the royal family fled Iran? The treasury was looted. Somebody got away with a good part of the crown jewels. Well, Hasi was somebody's cousin. Um, he was going to give me $25,000. So I went to Zurich. I went to a vault. Everything went fine. He met me at the airport. Who killed Hasi? They want the stones. If I lose the stones, oh, I'm dead for sure. The police can't help me. I'm one of the bad guys. Who were those men chasing you at the airport? I don't know. I've got to make some kind of deal with them. With who? That's what I have to find out. I know they're all Iranians or Persians or something. If they're on visas, they don't want trouble. All right, that does it for this week's review of Into the Night. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little bi-weekly podcast. If you had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network, including The Golden Age of the Silver Screen, Sunday Seconds with the Duke, and Movie House Memories. And again, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you download us off either iTunes or Stitcher, Make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms, and if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, and sometimes they'll let you come on the show, like Shane and Bobby have. So <laughs> we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. 
I'm Bobby. Uh, I'm Shane A, and I'm off to watch Batman Returns. Michelle Pfeiffer in a catsuit. Okay. <laughs> wow. Oh. I knew the time difference was a little bit different between here and Australia, but I didn't know it was 1952. <laughs> wow, you guys really get movies on delay down there. <laughs> well, you mentioned her nudity about three or four times during the podcast, so I thought I'd bring up the catsuit. She's just as good looking huh. in, in it as much as she is out. Well, that, that, that is true. I do not complain about that pleather outfit, but... <laughs> We gotta get out of it right now and you guys are invited. This podcast is not endorsed by Universal Studios Home Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Into the Night, all names and sounds of Into the Night characters and any other Into the Night related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Universal Studios Home Entertainment or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>